something to this idea, right? There is something to this idea of coming to faith apart from a rational argument. Um, I, I serve as an elder at Edgewood Community Church, and I'm going to be teaching a class, hopefully, this coming fall, where we're going to look at this question on religious epistemology. It's called uh, religious epistemology, and epistemology simply means the study of knowledge, how we come to know things. And we're going to look at this question. Is it possible to actually say that I know something without having a rational argument for it? Is it possible? And it seems like it is possible. Okay? What's your name, sir? Brian. Brian. I'm looking at Brian. I see a red shirt. I see Brian's red shirt. And I believe that Brian's wearing a red shirt. And I even go further than that. I'd say I know Brian is wearing a red shirt. But you know what? I don't have one argument that I could give you for why I believe or why I would say I know that Brian's wearing a red shirt. Okay? So it seems possible that I can know things without having a rational argument for it. And there are philosophers these days that are arguing that belief in God is something like that. All right? So I don't want to dismiss this approach out of hand, but what I do, what I do have a problem with is using this as a, an answer and an apologetic in defending the faith. And that's our topic here today, right? So, so how does this play into our apologetic? How do we defend the faith? Why is this important? And why is having knowledge about certain things about God, our beliefs, important for defending the faith? Okay, I'm going to talk about why knowledge is important. That's the next section here. Why is knowledge important for a strong faith and how does it relate to our defense? All right, now I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about this by giving you three phrases. I'm going to give you the phrases. They're listed there in your handout, and then I'm going to talk about it. But let me stop. I see some uh, kind of blank stares there. I want to ask you if you have any questions, any comments on what I've said so far. Anything uh, anybody want to ask? Okay. All right, right on. Okay, well, keep going then. All right, if you have any questions, then go ahead and pop your hand up, and, and I'll try to address those. Okay, so why is knowledge important for defense of the faith, and why is knowledge important for having a strong faith individually and personally? Let's look at this. The first phrase is, knowledge is the ground for responsible action. Knowledge is the ground for responsible action. That's the first phrase I want to think about. What does that mean? It means that we tend to give authority to people. We tend to give authority to people based on what they know, not on what they've experienced or on the relationships that they have. All right, and, and let me give you an example of that. I know two people, Megan and Aaron. Okay? Now, Megan loves me. Megan's my wife, and she's in a relationship with me. She cares for me. She has, she has my best interest in mind. I really believe that. And she looks out for me. However, when my car's broken down, I'm not going to go to Megan to get my car fixed. I'm going to take it to Aaron. Now, Aaron really couldn't care less about me as a person. Um, he likes me because I give him money, but uh, he really doesn't care about me. But I'm going to take my car to Aaron because Aaron knows the stuff. Aaron's my mechanic for my car. All right? Now, why am I going to Aaron? Am I going to Aaron because of his relationship to me or because of certain beliefs he has about me? No. I'm going to Aaron because of what he knows. And he is in a position of knowledge to be able to deal with my car. Now, if I were to go to uh, Megan or Aaron based on their beliefs or based on my relationship, I'd go to Megan every time. But I don't look to Megan as an authority on fixing my car because Megan doesn't have the right knowledge. Does that make sense? Okay, so I think the same is true in the area of religion. When people have questions about, about God, about who God is. Remember, we're talking about skeptics now. We're talking about people that haven't bought into the idea of Christianity. When people have questions about that, they're going to go to people that they believe have the answers, that have a base of knowledge from which to draw 
so that they can give them answers. And that's why I believe we as Christians have to have this ground of knowledge so we can have some authority in the areas about which we're speaking. And that's not to dismiss the experiential side. It's simply to say that when we're defending the faith, we have to have a ground of knowledge, a base of knowledge from which to draw so that people know that we know what we're talking about. And by the way, I believe that Christianity is rational, and I believe we can have knowledge about God, and I believe we can defend our faith with knowledge. So this isn't something that's, that's not possible. I believe it actually is possible. And we come to, uh, we come to um, our defense of the faith that, that way. I read an article uh, recently entitled, Why I Usually Don't Recommend Seminaries. And this is talking about people that are going into the ministry. And the guy was trying to, it was just a one-page deal where he was trying to argue why seminary is not important. And his, his thinking was that seminary doesn't train people on how to relate doesn't train uh, pastors on how to relate to people. And so we shouldn't really send our pastors to seminaries because they're irrelevant in that aspect of ministry. And for him, that was the only aspect of ministry. But if we have people that are set up in our churches as the authorities, or, or at least as people that should know something about the, the faith that they're promoting, it seems to me that they're having an education and knowledge of what they're talking about is important. That these folks should be at least knowledgeable about things like the Incarnation and, and give a, an example of uh, or a, 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 the overview of the Book of Romans or talk about the soul. People have questions about what the soul is. Uh, they should be in, in a position to be able to make these claims. Okay? Alright, so that's the first phrase. Knowledge is the ground of responsible action. Does anybody have any questions about that? Okay, let's move on then. The second phrase I want to talk about is, uh, is this. Reason is the means for transferring knowledge. Reason is the means for transferring knowledge. Now, if I make a claim, for instance, to know some proposition, say P, I know P, all right? I'm, that's my claim. Now, I want you to know P as well. Okay? I, I have a claim that I know P, and I want you to know P. All right? my, um, my simply asserting that I know P is not going to help you to believe P that, that P is true. It's not going to help you to know P. All right? For me to transfer my knowledge of P to you, it seems like I have to give you reasons for why you should believe P too. P as, as well. P also. All right? So reason or reasons, argumentation, seems to be the method of transferring what I know to what you know. Now notice I didn't say that it's important for me to have reasons for my knowledge of P. I gave the example of, of looking at Brian, Brian's shirt, right? I know that Brian is wearing a red shirt and I don't have any reasons for it. But suppose you were in the next room and you couldn't see Brian, and I wanted to convince you that Brian's wearing a red shirt. Now, if you, if you believed me, if you thought I was a nice guy and I simply said, I see Brian's wearing a red shirt, you may believe me. But you have a reason. You say, I know Paul, and I know Paul always tells the truth, therefore I'm going to believe Paul. But so, suppose you didn't know anything about me or you had this, this uh, conviction that I was an avid liar. And I said, I, believe, I know that Brian is wearing a red shirt. For me to convince you that Brian actually is wearing a red shirt, I have to give you some argumentation, right? Maybe I would interview some people and I'd say five people saw Brian wearing a red shirt. Well, suppose you also knew something else about Brian, that Brian doesn't own any red shirt. Suppose you say, I know Brian and I know he doesn't have one, one red shirt in his closet. Now it's going to be harder for you to believe that Brian's wearing a red shirt, right? So maybe I have to present another argument, like they were giving out red shirts at the door and Brian picked one up and put one on. But you see what I'm doing? In order to transfer my knowledge that Brian is wearing a red shirt to you, I have to give you reasons and argumentation for that. Okay? You're not going to just accept it because you haven't had the experience. 
Now, you may come to have the experience later on, but that knowledge of, of what I've experienced is not going to be transferred to you by simply my asserting that I have the knowledge. Is everybody on the same page? Okay, that's why when we talk about a defense, and we talk about a defense to people that are skeptical of what we believe, we have to have reasons and argumentation, I believe, to transfer that knowledge. And again, it's not the case that I have to have reasons, but for me to transfer it, transfer that knowledge, it is important. All right? So that's the second phrase. Now, the third phrase is this, and we won't spend much time on this, but the third phrase is you can't be... This is, and this is for you personally, in your own faith and strengthening your own faith. I don't think it's possible uh, to be committed to vague beliefs. You can't be committed to vague beliefs. If you, if you believe something vaguely, you're not going to be committed to that belief. All right? Suppose I had two glasses up here, both of clear liquid, and I said one is water and one, one has arsenic in it. One is full of arsenic or some poison. If you, and I, you may give you some flip argument for which is which, if you had a vague belief of which one was which, you're not going to commit to drinking the one that you believe is water. Right? You have to have a pretty solid commitment to the belief that glass A is water as opposed to glass B before you're going to pick that thing up and drink it. And I think the same is true for eternal matters, for the, the state of our soul. I think you have to be pretty committed to the belief that you have a soul and that your soul has been saved through the blood of Jesus Christ before you're going to commit to that belief. And I think we see our churches filled with people that really don't know what they believe in, and so their commitment is vague. They, don't, they sit in the pew and they don't do thing, anything on a week-by-week -week basis because they're not really committed to the belief. It sounds nice, and they like the community they get by going to church, but they haven't really owned the belief. And I think a lot of it is based on the fact that they don't really know what, what they say they believe in. They don't have a ground of knowledge for who God is, for who Jesus Christ is. They don't know some of the history of, of what they believe. They don't know the theology of what they believe. And so that presents a problem. Okay, So you can't be committed to vague beliefs. Now I, wanna, I want to uh, give a little sidebar here. Um, some of you may disagree with what I've said so far. You may disagree with me and you may not think that knowledge is important and that argumentation isn't important for having a good, strong faith commitment. If you believe that, let me, let me suggest some things to you. First of all, if you disagree with me, you're probably drawing on a ground of knowledge from which you're disagreeing, right? You're saying, I know something about this topic that Party's talking about and I happen to know he's wrong. But you have a ground of knowledge that you're drawing from. You see what I'm saying? So, so you're making a claim to know something. And then from that claim, you're claiming that my assertions are incorrect. Not only that, not only do you have a ground of knowledge, but you're forming arguments in your mind. You're saying, he's wrong because of reason A, reason B, reason C, and then you draw a line and draw a conclusion. Party is incorrect. Okay? So in order to disagree with me, you have to actually adopt the very method that I'm giving you. You have to have a ground of knowledge from which to argue against me, and then you have to come up with arguments and reasons for why I'm incorrect. Now, the reason I think that's the case is because I believe God created us to have rational beliefs based on reason. In order for us to be rational people, we are designed, in a sense, to, have, uh, to, to need knowledge and reason. I don't think this is something that just the philosophers one day thought of and thought it would be a good idea to promote. But I believe it comes from our design, our design as human persons. That knowledge and uh, having knowledge and reasons is important to be a reasonable, reasonable person. Does everybody get what I just said? I think that's a very important aspect of who we are. 
So when we try to promote our faith apart from, apart from these reasons, I think that's where we get into big trouble. All right, let me stop there. Any uh, comments? Yes, sir. James. Say, say that again. What does it say? People perish for lack of knowledge. Yeah. What's the uh, What's the context of that? Is anybody anybody know? He was giving a He was giving a prophecy, wasn't he? And does it say? Yeah. Yeah. It's repeated in Revelation 18:4. Right. That's That's important. Have more knowledge than we do all the time. Have knowledge, so you can combat. Right. Right. He knows the word just as much as we do. Mm-hmm. If we don't know it, mm-hmm. he can beat us up with it. Sure. That's so right. Yeah. Knowledge is very important. Right. I agree. It's the manual of life. Mm-hmm. What do you think the church is drifting in this direction? That's a great and important question. Um, I'm actually not going to be able to deal with that in this in this session, but I will in the next one. I'll provide some history for what happened. Uh, I think it's critical to understand that. Um. I think there was an onslaught of ideologies that happened about uh, about 150 years ago that uh, coincided with the uh, success of science, and the two uh, presented a situation where the church either had to fight or flee, and I think the church ended up fleeing. Um, I think we're always going to be presented with, with false ideas, but we have to respond in a certain way, and I don't think the church was ready. Uh, this happened around the time of Hume and Kant and Darwin, and all these things kind of coalesced and presented a situation in the church I think responded poorly. That's not to beat up on our brothers and sisters of 150 years ago, but I think we could have done a better job. So I think that's how we ended up in this situation. But I'll talk more about that next session. Good. Any, anyone else? Any comments? Okay. All right. We only have a few minutes left here. Let me, um, let me talk about what happens then when uh, the evangelical community, the church, is grounded on personal conviction rather than on knowledge. And I'm going, to, I'm going to put merely personal conviction, okay? I want to continue to emphasize that having this experience, we don't want to have a, a faith that is merely the result of an argument, uh, just a merely a, a syllogistic faith, right? Where we just say, I believe simply because of this argument. We don't want that. Uh, I, think that uh, I think having a, the experiential side is extremely important. But having a, having a community, an evangelical com- community that's grounded simply on that, I think causes us problems. And let's, let's talk about uh, some of the results of this. The first result is that the church loses her authority in the culture. The ch- church loses her authority in the culture. And I think this is where we find the church today. We find the church having a hard time getting anybody to listen to her. Okay? And the, the church doesn't have a voice. Uh, uh, Richard John Newhouse said we are in the naked public square, which means we, we simply don't have a, a ground from which to approach the culture. So we lose our authority in the culture. Most of us are familiar with the recent Littleton crisis, right? Who did the culture, who did the society and the people in our culture, in American culture, go to for answers when that, uh, when that crisis hit? Who did they turn to? The media. The media was one place where they looked for, uh, for getting action, getting some action. But psychology, right. Psychology, brain scientists. What was going on in the, mind, in the brains of these individuals? Was there some genetic disorder? Bottom line is they went to the scientists, didn't they? Right. They went to people in lab coats. Now, did the minister have a role in dealing with this crisis? Sure. What was the minister's role? Counseling for grief. Personal comfort, wasn't it? Now, is that unimportant? Of course not. It's very important. But you notice that the, the individuals seeking answers didn't go to the minister for 
answers about why it occurred or uh, what, was, what was happening in the minds of these individuals. How can we solve this problem from occurring again? The minister had nothing to say about that. So all the minister could do is comfort those people because really the minister's job is for personal relationships and making people feel better. But it has no authority in the grounds of, of, of talking about the human condition, talking about improving the human condition. Our culture does not look to the minister anymore for authority in that area. Like you said, the church abdicated its position in the marketplace of ideas. Right. And therefore, there's no place for it in the market anymore. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really true. I think we've done a lot uh, a lot to promote that idea. So when we, when we base our convictions solely on our experience instead of on an ideology, I think we lose our authority in the culture. I, uh, I was recently uh, made aware of a fact, a, a local pastor in this area. Um, in one month, he spent 83 hours doing premarital counseling. He spent, that's, that's two full weeks of work simply, and this was the main teaching pastor of this church. Now, to me, folks, that's a problem. That's a problem. Now, I'm not saying that premarital counseling is unimportant. I'm not saying our churches shouldn't do that. But we are functioning more these days in evangelicalism. Our churches are more like hospitals instead of foxholes, right? I think that was Swindoll's term. Now, being a hospital is critical. And if we, if we fail to do that, we're going to be a cold, lifeless church. But on the other side, we, we need to be a foxhole as well. We need to be preparing people to think and to do battle with the enemy and to have a strength and faith for their own well-being, right? So, you know, when, we, when we're spending most of our time uh, as, as leaders and teachers counseling, uh, we're missing something. And by the way, I think that, uh, that the, the, the model of the church should be set up such that there are people in the church that can do this work. So if you need to spend 83 hours doing counseling, the leading teaching pastor shouldn't be doing that. There should be qualified people within the body that can help fulfill that role, right? So I'm not saying that we get rid of the counseling, but someone else should be doing it, not, not those who are responsible for teaching. All right. So that's the first thing. The church loses her authority in the culture. The second thing I think that happens is that the church becomes marginalized. The church becomes marginalized. And uh, let me give you a quick definition, and I'll talk more about this next session. An entity becomes marginalized when, either by its own negligence or by some outside force, and Eric, uh, Eric or Kurt, Kurt sorry, uh, you made the point that the church marginalized herself, right, by abdicating that, that authority. Um, when, by its own negligence or by some outside force, that entity does not have the power to influence the direction or the state of the society. That's marginalization. Now, most of us would agree that the church at least appears to be marginalized, that our ideas, what we see as a moral truth, things that are morally true, uh, homosexuality, is, homosexuality is wrong, uh, abortion is wrong. Those ideas coming from the basis of religion has no authority. Those views are marginalized. They're not even allowed in the discussion. Isn't that true? You can't even get involved in discussion if you say that you're a religious person, the person these days, at least in the West. Um, I know of, uh, of a couple of doctoral students that are trying to get their PhDs uh, in, in presenting ideas uh, in their thesis that, uh, that are dealing with things like creationism. And these folks can't even get their PhDs because of the very topics that they're dealing with. And these aren't just shabby, shabby this isn't shabby work. These guys are putting together some of the top, uh, top-notch work that you'll find in, in, in uh, doctoral dis- dissertations. They're doing really high-quality work. 
that have a lot of scientific basis. But because the conclusion is that the universe was created, they can't even get their voices heard. And this is actually happening uh, in universities. And most of you, I, I think, would agree. So, so uh, we're marginalized. The, uh, the ideas that are presented by the church are seen as uh, irrelevant, and they're certainly not welcome. And most of us could attest to that. Um, I'm running out of time here. Let me, let me just close with this. And I, I don't want to just give you a lot of bad news. I don't think this is the time for wringing your hands and saying we're in trouble. We need to uh, you know, hide in a corner. I think what we need to be doing is to try to change the situation. And I'm actually pretty excited. I, I think the Northwest is in uh, really prime condition for an explosion uh, and, and a, uh, a revival. Uh, the Northwest is growing extremely rapidly. Uh, most of you, if, if you have to commute at all, I spend an hour and a half one way in traffic each day. Uh, you know that this area is just growing by leaps and bounds. Yet it's the most unchurched state in the Union. Did you know that? Washington's number one, Oregon's number two. So we have got a lot of work to do. And part of what I want to do in this session, what I want to do in this session and what I want to do in the next session is to talk about how we as a church, as a body, can mobilize and, and get ready for this. Uh, Peter tells us to be ready to make a defense. And part of what we need to do as educators, which I, I believe all of you are, is to help our churches become ready. So what I wanted to do in this session is to present where I think the church is at as far as our defense goes. And what I'm going to do in the next session is talk about how we can mobilize the church. What steps can we take to get the church back on track so that, yes, we have the experiential on the one side, but also we have this ground of knowledge from which to approach the culture. All right, that's my goal. Are there any, any questions before I let you go? Yes. Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. What do I mean when I say that we have to know certain things? I think um, I'm going to define it largely propositionally, where we have a set of, we know a set of facts. We have a set of facts before our minds that we believe are true. Okay? Now, the, the definition of knowledge itself is, is slippery, and I'm actually going to talk about that in this class that I'm going to be teaching. But knowledge, I believe, is where um, you have a, a justified belief that is true. Okay, so you, have, you believe something's true, and you have good reasons for believing that it's true. Okay, now that's a very simple definition. So when I say that we have a ground of knowledge, I mean that we know things about God. We know certain propositions about who he is. Um, we have this experiential knowledge. We have a personal knowledge of Christ and of his work. Uh, I think we have to have a knowledge of our own, our own selves, uh, what it means to be a person, a soul. We have to have a knowledge of, um, of what it would mean for something to be non-physical. You know, our culture is largely, largely naturalistic, which means they don't believe in anything transcendent. I think we have to be able to defend the idea of the transcendent. What does that mean? What does it mean for something to be non-physical? And we have to have a certain set of propositions that we have before our mind to where we can defend that through reason and argumentation. Okay, so, so for me, uh, under, having knowledge is being able to articulate uh, with reason the views that we say that we hold. Instead of simply saying, this is something I believe, but I have no idea uh, what it would mean to believe that or why I believe it. So that's just a quick definition. That may not be satisfactory, but that's how I would uh, give a first approach to it. Okay? Anyone else? Any questions? That concludes this program. This material was recorded and produced by Mobile Tape Company Incorporated of Valencia, California. More information about other available media may be obtained by calling 1-800-369-5718 or on our website, mobiletape.com.